listening to the Stoic Solutions Podcast, practical wisdom for everyday life inspired by ancient philosophers of Greece and Rome. I'm your host, Justin Vakula. Visit my website at stoicsolutionspodcast.com. This is episode number 100, An Extraordinarily Ordinary Life, Lessons Learned with Tim Carlin. We recorded our conversation in October of 2020, several months into shelter-in-place restrictions in the United States and elsewhere. Here's a short blurb for his book. In An Extraordinarily Ordinary Life, Tim draws upon past experiences to give readers a crash course on facing life's challenges and seizing its opportunities. You'll learn to look into the future, not in the rearview mirror, why taking the easy way out is selling yourself short, the benefit of not following the crowd, and much, much more. Tim will help you take what you have and make the most of it. He knows that small changes, when taken together, allow you to change your world for the better. Enjoy the conversation. All right, joining me today is Tim Carlin, author of the book, An Extraordinarily Ordinarily Life, Lessons Learned. Thank you for joining me today. Really a pleasure to be here. Great, and your book came out in 2020. It's new. It's a new book (laughs) during this pandemic. We'll talk about that during the episode. You found me. How, How did you find the podcast? What was your interest in stoicism? Well, growing up in Buffalo, New York and shoveling snow every day for six months of the year, um, I thought it was a perfect fit because of my endurance of hardship without complaining for 18 years. Great. And you found the the ancient philosophers first or you found stoicism through some other routes? How did that come about? Yeah. You know, I think it's interesting because uh, growing up with a Jesuit education and then West Point. Uh, there's always a high sense of duty and virtue based on knowledge uh, with a little mixture of fate and providence thrown in. Right. So some elements from the classic tradition and more modern stoicism, more modern interpretations as well as this space is undergoing a revival of sorts. Yeah, I think it's I think it's great. The study of philosophy is every bit as important as the study of mathematics and statistics. Right. And we're talking about some people really don't look into stoicism. Do they really have a life philosophy? Do they have a mindset? Do they have some kind of base which they can draw from? Yeah, no, I I think it. whenever we go through a hard time, I think it's one of those things that if you have a belief in stoicism, it certainly gets you through that. Great. All right, let's move on to your book. What led you to publish? Uh, You have this very um, public look at your life for the general public. Yeah, I I did it for two reasons. Uh, Number one, for a legacy for my family, but also, number two, I I felt I could touch a lot of people who, you know, consider themselves very ordinary, uh, but yet have lived extraordinary lives, and possibly to give some help and guidance for those people who are in the middle of some crisis in their life to help them get through it. And I felt being a stoic, I had lived so many and done so many different things. I needed to write it on paper, not only for my family, but possibly to help touch someone who needed help at this point in time. And many of the themes you talk about in your book are transferable or practical, and people can use many of these lessons in their everyday life as you talk about, oh, well, look, I was in the military and these are some things that I drew upon. These are some themes that I found in the military and these skills worked also in financial advising. And, oh, look, I play these different roles throughout my life, but yet I draw from the same base. Yeah. You know, I think so often, Justin, we pigeonhole ourselves and we think we have to kind of be in this lane of life. And I think one of the advantages of 
learning about the philosophers and reading about stoicism is that you realize, you know, it's okay to redirect. It's okay to reinvent yourself. Uh, it's okay to go outside your normal lane to become someone that initially you weren't. Right. Taking some calculated risks, even as so many people just stay in the same thing where maybe they're in a job they don't like, a position they don't like, but they just keep doing the same thing day to day, even though they're really not satisfied. In the book, I write, it's okay to get uncomfortable and you actually grow when you're uncomfortable. So if you're learning to transition from the military to go into restaurants and run a restaurant and you have to fry chicken, which I had to do at Kentucky Fried Chicken, you know, that's somewhat uncomfortable when all of a sudden you're an officer and then you're in the back office in a restaurant learning how to do 7107 in fried chicken. But it's those moments of being uncomfortable that help you then take a step back to take two or three steps forward and grow. And I think you don't want to do that just once in your life. You want to do it multiple times because ultimately it's really required for you to be happy. Right. In your book, you touch upon the theme a lot that change is inevitable in life. Many people don't like change. They fear change. And they have these really high expectations. Oh, everything is going to stay the same. I could keep doing this over and over and over again. But now the pandemic is a big wake-up call for people as, look, all these things you, you thought were very stable, you thought life was the certain way, and now it's really upended. So how do you pivot? How do you transfer and thrive amidst change? You know, it's interesting because it's so timely, the book, because of the reinvention due to the pandemic. I visited Moscow, Russia for one week right around 2010. And it was fascinating talking to people who were in their 50s that had to transition from a communist system to somewhat more of a socialist system involving some capitalism. And it was just fascinating to where they had to go from having everything provided for them to all of a sudden going out and making a living. So in a lot of cases, it required people to learn a new language in order to be a tour guide. You had to learn English because many, many folks around the world speak English. There were many other reinvention stories from the people of Moscow, Russia. And I think we're kind of in that situation here in the United States as far as, you know, millions of people will have to reinvent themselves. Right. And in many ways, we can connect with others. You, you mentioned capitalism. Sometimes that gets a very bad rap. But the theme in Stoicism, it's not that money or these externals or things are necessarily bad in themselves. It's a question of how you use them. Okay, you can corrupt people, you can help others. There's also this cosmopolitan idea within Stoicism that everything is a connected community and you want to treat others well. So through your work, you can produce some value for others and help others in the process. Yeah, I think Stoicism is so valuable from the standpoint of you really do, if you're a Stoic, you do try to walk in other shoes and learn from, from their path in life. And as a result of doing that, you're much more open to different ideas and realizing, you know, capitalism, socialism, communism, you know, all have some, in certain ways, very good points. And, and there's not one system that's best for everyone in this world. 
And certainly with your experiences in the military, different jobs, different places, different countries, you've been able to connect with people of various backgrounds too. I think the military was important for me from the standpoint of service. In my book, I write about King Arthur in Might for Right. And uh, when he's a young boy, his name is Wart. And Merlin is kind of his mentor. And Merlin transforms him, being a good stoic, into all of these different types of animals to learn uh, might is for right, not might is right. And that's the kind of the way I approached uh, the military. Um, it was a way to actually serve. And what was wonderful about it is I came in contact with people from all over the world, all different socioeconomic backgrounds and cultures to learn how to get along and communicate and work together with each other. Right. And drawing upon King Arthur, you also mentioned the idea of a fellowship was very important, that he was amongst the other knights at the round table. It wasn't just, uh, oh, he's he's off on the side here just giving orders and not really being part of the process. <laughs> right. No, that's absolutely true. And uh, I read that book maybe once a year just to kind of get re-energized and recharged uh, to realize that King Arthur also had some misfortunes in life. And the whole theme of the book is the once and future king that even though he may have fallen at one point, in the end, he will return or the concept of King Arthur will return. Right. There's this idea of perfection. You, you know that it's really bad to strive for perfection. And the Stoic authors are really humble. You read Epictetus. He talks about, oh, look, I have these challenges with anger. And I, I, I don't look at being completely free from anger, but I can improve. Oh, I noticed that I wasn't as angry today as I was a month ago or... I was able to be mindful about the situation. So there's that self-awareness that's really important in looking for progress rather than perfection. So it's great because in the book, I write about putting your ego on the shelf. And that involves sometimes not being angry and doing things that, again, make you uncomfortable. And the 80% solution, 80-20 rule. I think so many of us sometimes strive for perfection and then beat us, beat ourselves up when we when we don't feel we're there. My book is 80 percent true as far as being correct. <laughs> and there's mistakes in the book that I'm OK with. I can live with it because if I tried to get it to 100 percent, it would be the year 2060 until I got it out. So <laughs> it, it's so yeah. true. I mean, we beat ourselves up and it's not necessary. Right. We can't spend forever getting started and then be so off base, especially if things aren't perfect. I mean, who builds a business on the first day and everything goes really well or who engages in some endeavor like writing? I'm sure you've gone through several edits <laughs> throughout the book and getting all this feedback and everything. And rather than, oh, you don't know what you're talking about, editors. You, oh, I'm just going to go ahead and publish this thing. You know, <laughs> you're, you're happy to take that feedback and improve. Oh, it was fascinating because as I was working on the book, or anything for that matter, learning to dance, um, you know, you, you spend an hour and you may have a great day or two, and then there's a frustrating couple of days. And I think the good stoic is able to put the ego on the shelf and work through it, and all of a sudden it would then click, whether it's a learning a certain dance or getting through a certain chapter or learning how to fry chicken, or being a good military officer, I think chopping down the redwood tree one little chop at a time is the way to go, not thinking you're going to get it in one big swipe. 
Right. And not everybody is going to be amazing at everything. I mean, maybe you're not so great with data entry, bookkeeping, but you can say, oh, well, I have a friend or a business partner who can handle that. And that's that's OK. Right. I'm not going to be the best coder in the world and make a website that someone else can do that for me. And people can get really distraught when they're not perfectionists or they're not or sorry, they're not perfect with everything. So I'm little. I'm like five, seven. And uh I, I was legally blind uh, when I was younger. Um, so I had all these like little things I had to work through and I had such a difficult time meeting people. So I figured in order to turn into a George Clooney, which I never would turn into, I kind of had to learn how to play a musical instrument, sing or dance. Well, I wasn't very good at musical instrumentality and, and my vocal cords are horrible. But I finally put myself out there, got uncomfortable and learned how to dance. And that's that's how eventually I met my wife. So, again, realizing, you know, we face so many challenges, all of us. Um, and then how can you turn lemonade into lemons and reinvent yourself? That's one of the major themes in your book, turning weaknesses into strengths. Yeah, the uh, and, and I have plenty of them. So um, I thought the book would be fascinating from the standpoint where People that are who are ordinary can identify with them. And trying to get into West Point, I was an average test taker. And you either have to take the ACT or SAT and score a certain level. And I had to do that darn test six times. And I did prove every time. Sometimes I, I actually fell back. Uh, but eventually I got it and got accepted, which was wonderful. So not getting too frustrated with myself and beating myself up. I just kept plugging away and eventually got uh, into West Point uh, by taking that test six times. Right. And you, did, you didn't give up on it. You had the goal you really wanted to get in. So that motivation has to be there, too. Talking about the endurance of hardship, you probably remember those ACT and SAT tests. They were like four to six hours, I think. Uh, <laughs> yeah, they're, they're, they're monsters. The last standardized test I took was in a test-taking center, and I was in there for about three to four hours, and you have to go. It's like a TSA uh, screening going into the place. <laughs> like, oh, let's roll down your sleeves and yeah. check everything, and you there's this locker and it's like, oh, wow, that's a quite, quite a thing there. <laughs> your heart's beating, you're sweating profusely, or your hands yeah. are cold, whatever it might be. Uh, there's yes, a certain every, degree of nervousness. Yes, everybody was social distanced before that was a thing, too. <laughs> like We had these little cubicles that we had to take the test in. Uh, so, <laughs> it's, no, it's And you're always thing. careful. You, you want to make sure, you, you know, there's, you're definitely not looking over, but even if you look to see what time it is, you want to make sure you're not being perceived as <laughs> yeah, looking yeah. over someone's shoulder. <laughs> oh, gee. It's like, is that smartwatch okay? Is that all yeah, right? Yeah, that's right. Oh, I don't think that's allowed either. <laughs> I, I don't have a regular watch. So. Yeah. And preparedness, that's another theme in your book. And, and really taking survey of what's to come, knowing what we're getting into before we get into it. I, in order to be um, a better officer, I wanted to get accepted into ranger school and pass that. So I knew there was a rope knot tying test that was timed. And it's very stressful because being from urban Buffalo, I had no idea what a mountain was at all. The closest to me being outdoors was doing snow angels in front of my school when it snowed. 
So I got the book on what was going to be tested. And during my vacation time, I hired a mountain climber to teach me these 14 timed knots. So I worked on the knots for about two to three weeks. Again, not being that bright, it took me every day going over them again and again. And when I finally was in ranger school, I retained enough information to get 12 of the 14 knots and pass that portion of ranger school. So that really made me feel better and took a load off my mind starting ranger school that I knew these knots much better than trying to learn them when they taught me during school. Right. It gives you a real heads up. And some people might just want to fly into things and really not think about what they're getting into. I know today, certainly student loan debt is a really big thing. People going to university just willy-nilly and, oh, I'm going to take on all of this. And then they're not even interested in the field or they change. You know, it's it's really interesting. People getting married. I mean, people moving to certain areas and then they find out they don't like it a month in. And then what do you do? You've already made this commitment. Yeah. Uh, that, and that goes back to that reinvention, because, you know, if we get married and it doesn't work out, you know, we have to reinvent ourselves and do some self-introspection and, again, put our ego on the shelf. So these themes of stoicism in learning about yourself and philosophy and growing and maybe taking a step back for two t steps forward, so very important because our careers, unlike our parents or grandparents, oftentimes based on downsizing or our changing needs are going to change two to three to four times over the course of a lifetime. Absolutely. And with the pandemic, I'm in the Philadelphia area. There are several, several casinos in this area, Atlantic City, and many people just laid off. It's like, oh, well, we can't have these games anymore. We can't have as many people. We have all these restrictions. The restaurants closed. And yeah, what, what do you really do there? So there's that call to reinvent and not just give up, not just to despair, not to get angry. We might feel some of these intense negative emotions as I've referred to in past episodes. And okay, that's part of the human experience, but being angry your whole life, that's not the preferred way we want to go about things. It's not going to be the choice that we want. If we're going into battle, anger, you know, we, we'd rather have a clearer mind about things. The Stoics note that with anger, we're bound to make mistakes and compromise our virtue and our character. And that goes right back to when I got laid off. Instead of being angry, I took what I learned 10 years before living in Tulsa. I learned how to country western two-step because that's what everyone did back in the 90s. They, they country western two-step. And uh, it was very frustrating because I didn't know a lick about it, but I, I gradually learned it. And then my teacher mentioned, hey, in addition to that, why don't you learn cha-cha, rumba, swing, waltz, all these different types of dances? And I gradually did. And the interesting thing about the dances is that it's often like being a stoic and being a different philosopher each dance has a different rhythm, a different feeling, and you as a person are a different character. So whether you're playing different musical instruments or you're singing different types of genres and songs, the same holds true for this dancing. So to bring the story full circle, when I got laid off back in 2001, my friend at the time in Chicago, Jack Weinrock, who worked for the city, saw an advertisement to become 
a gentleman host on board a cruise ship. Now, I know what everyone's initially thinking when you mention that, but in actuality, it's a way of serving others whose maybe husbands have passed away or they may, women on board the ship may be single. So I applied for the position and because of trying to learn something different back in 1990s and then putting my ego on the shelf while I was trying to find a position back in 2000s, I applied the dancing to get accepted as a gentleman host. And in return, I was able to travel around the world for a year on board the Queen Elizabeth II, teaching people how to dance and dancing with people who didn't have any partners in the evenings. And it was just a wonderful taking a negative and turning, turning it into a positive. But that's kind of what happens with these reinventions when you do them for yourself every five or 10 years. Yeah, who who knows how things earlier in life might come out and come up in the future. So that's 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 interesting. It was a recent job where I had worked with kids, and I remembered many games that I had played when I was much younger, and I was able to teach them. Like, oh, well, I, I didn't think this would come up again. So we're able to draw on these themes and see that past experiences can lead to the present. And I think it's that belief in a higher power a philosophy that allows you to come out of bad things, uh, whether it's a cancer diagnosis, a family relationship issue, getting laid off, and these are all things that have personally happened to me, uh, that allows you to kind of reinvent yourself and come out on the other side. So it, it is all related, and I think everything in our lives build on one another. It's finding that purpose and meaning in life for the religious, for the non-religious, and for people out there who say, oh, life is pointless, why should I bother? That's certainly not a way to go about things. The Stoics really warn about that. They, they want us to find meaning in life. They want us to find a purpose, a reason to go on, whether it's helping others, whether it's improving ourselves, whether it's taking on challenges. There's, there's so much we can do, especially in this age with technology and travel, as you mentioned. So many experiences that we can have rather than being just restricted to one place and just a few people, too. Yeah, I agree, Justin. And you brought up something, too, I think we don't do a good job of. I think the ladies do a great job of when they have a certain feeling or they're not feeling uh, the best, they reach out to their friends and talk about it over lunch. And I think one of the things I've learned throughout my life is more and more, you know, develop a network of friends where I can put my ego on the shelf again and put my anger, kind of suppress that and kind of talk about my feelings to other friends but I have to reach out to them because sometimes people don't do, you know, they're not, they can't read your mind on what you're feeling. So I think that's something we can do a much better job of going forward. Yeah, the theme of friendship comes up a lot within the Stoic text, especially in Seneca writing letters to his friend and was talking about the value of the friendship and that a really good friend can and should be open to someone else and look for that feedback and share concerns and really flesh these things out rather than people you know who just don't want to hear it or cut you off or dismiss your ideas <laughs> rather than people who are glib we want to surround ourselves with quality people it's also something that you write in your book yeah it's funny so often i pull someone into a conversation or out to lunch when i'm not quite so sure they want to go but then after we're done talking you know they may say you know i really appreciate this you know i don't 
I don't do it myself, but you pull me out. And when I'm done, I feel so much better. So thank you. So sometimes, again, feeling uncomfortable in, in telling someone you need to talk or want to see how they're doing. And can you give me an hour or half an hour means a lot. And, and it may make you feel initially uncomfortable, but in the end, it, it may make the other person really grateful and comfortable that they're able to express themselves. And it's a win-win for everyone. And drawing on the social network is a really good thing as people can isolate and get into really bad habits in a bad place, whether it's a lot of drug use, drinking too much, harmful behaviors, overeating. They're, they're taking these things and going to excess, which is something that we definitely want to avoid. So I love surrounding myself with positive people, and I call it giving me good gas. So I try to give good gas to other people, too. So when I, when I meet folks, sometimes you're energized by them. And then sometimes when you meet some folks, you're drained. So one tip I definitely want to give is definitely make sure you continue to hang around the folks that when you're done, uh, you get a good feeling and you're energized rather than drained. That's a, that's a really good tip. I hear from people who tolerate others and they talk about, oh, well, oh, they're family, so I'll put up with them. But every time they have these engagements where they go to the family dinner, whatever, they walk away, it's like, oh, look, Aunt Clara is so terrible and I can't stand her and everything. It says, as an adult, we get to make these choices. In some cases, it can make sense. Okay, we'll attend this dinner because we want to see other family members. But to definitely, yeah, be mindful of that experience we have when walking away from encounters with other people. Yeah, you know, to do that, it's funny because my mom and I had that type of relationship. And I would tell her, Mom, I love you and want to spend time with you, but I want to make sure it's really enriching. So if I don't spend time with you, it's not because I don't love you. And I would always say that. And eventually, you know, she started spending more time with me and it was less complaining and much more fun. And in the end, it worked out. But I think we have to tell our friends and family, you know, we do love them and care about them very deeply and, and open ourselves up, put our ego on the shelf and tell them why we're feeling the way we feel. Right. And at some point there has to be a, a cutoff with certain people. Uh, we can think of extreme examples like, oh, every time we meet with a certain friend or family member, they are really verbally nasty to us. Um, they promise to pay us back, but they don't, you know, they steal from us. And some people are like, oh, well, that's just so-and-so or, oh, well, that's family. Right. But Wait, I think there has to be some lines. Sometimes uh, people misinterpret Stoics as just um, taking it all and, you know, not really having any line and being doormats. And that's certainly not the way we want to be. And to follow up on that, I think to break away from those toxic relationships, get uncomfortable, go learn how to play chess, learn how to dance, uh, go help serve at a soup kitchen. Just get out of that environment, get uncomfortable, meet some new friends and chop down that redwood tree. And, and I think you're so true in what you say, because all of us have those family uh, or those toxic relationships that are quite healthy. Yes. And in your book, you talk about the danger of crowds as well as we can be very quick to engage in groupthink or to not really look into things or just go along with what people are doing. And especially if it's unvirtuous behavior that people are engaging in just because the masses say this or that or do this or that doesn't mean that it's the right thing. Yeah, I, I do write about that. And I was a young boy when I really learned about that. And uh, it's funny because we're having 
Um, every 80 to 100 years in our country, we go through a cycle of change. And going back to Plymouth Rock back in the mid-1600s, then 100 years later, you had the revolution. Then 100 years later, you had the abolition of slavery and the Civil War. Then 100 years later, you had uh, the, the Spanish pandemic, World War II and one, the Great Depression. And now we're going through another pandemic and a transition as it relates to all of this political drama that's out there. So early on, back in the 60s, we had similar types of riots and tremendous drama because great leaders such as Robert Kennedy were assassinated, John F. Kennedy, Martin Luther King. There was a tremendous amount of social upheaval. The Vietnam War was going on, and you were diametrically opposed on either sides of these issues. And my dad was a wonderful influence on my life from the standpoint of no one position is bad as long as you think through the position and you can reasonably express it and listen to the other person's side and why they feel that way, and then come to a conclusion. And, and if that conclusion is different than the crowd's conclusion, that's still okay. It's, it's the right thing to do as long as you've taken in both sides of why people feel a certain way on an issue. Right. I think people can be really hasty to demonize others and think of things as polarized in that, okay, well, I have these good ideas and people who disagree with me are terrible and the voter for so-and-so candidate must be a monster or an idiot. And okay, well, some, some people out there might not be so reflective and some people out there might be poor, have poor intentions, but for to consider that everybody, like half of the population is, is a horrible human being. That's, that's quite the, the overreach. And I, I see that so often as we can get into social media and posting in Facebook threads and everything, which, uh, especially with the pandemic, it can be easy to do that if you don't have more to do, but to be mindful of our activities and yeah, to be more charitable. And I think that's where the education, learning philosophy, learning about stoicism, uh, learning about the different people that embody that and just where they came from and what their lives were an embodiment of really goes a long way then for you to be able to understand the other person's point of view, just like you're able to understand how jazz is different from hip hop, how a rumba is different from waltz uh, when it comes to dancing and or music. And they're all good but in their own way. It doesn't mean you need to listen to them, but you can certainly appreciate the reason why other people listen to them or believe in that type of dance. Right. The understanding is important. And many other philosophical traditions, even Seneca writes about rival schools of philosophy in his time and saying, that, oh, hey, they're, they actually have a good point on this. Or, look, I, I agree on this kind of issue rather than just vilifying the other so we can learn from other traditions and surely not one tradition is going to have all the answers or one particular political party or economic system or what whatever it is right we're always learning we're always growing and trying to improve and that's that's a really nice thing some people can be very negative about oh look this and that happened in america all these years ago but oh hey look there's progress that that's a, that's a good thing and i think that's the big thing just little pieces of progress. Another funny story in my book is 
I didn't, I wasn't allowed to drive when I was in high school because my dad at the time was a police officer in Buffalo, New York, and he saw a lot of accidents where kids were hurt driving. So when I got accepted to West Point, I didn't know how to drive. And at West Point, you're not allowed to drive until you're a senior. So I was nearly 21, 22 when I had, if you remember this, Justin, back in the day, the big lights on top of a car that would blink and it would say student driver. Everything's much more discreet now. But back in the day, you had this big ski rack type thing that said student driver. So I was a senior at West Point and all the plebes who are freshmen and they started driving from Kansas and Oklahoma like at 14 years of age kind of looked at me like, what is this guy doing? He's learning how to drive and he's like a senior. They couldn't believe it. So I had to put my ego on the shelf and learn how to drive when I was a senior at West Point. But the end of the story is now making little improvements in my driving skill through the years. Now I actually track different race cars on track with other cars. So I've learned how to become somewhat of a skilled high performance driver on track. Uh, but who would have thought that when I had the student driver come on back at West Point <laughs> right. uh, getting teased? Yeah, I see the bumper stickers on the road now. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah. it's just not as not as obvious. Very that's, discreet. That's for sure, yeah. But, but talking <laughs> about the endurance of hardship or uh, and not complaining, uh, but then in the end turning it around, I, I think we're all capable of doing these things in our own realities. Um, maybe someone has no interest in driving cars that fast, but you've got an interest in a different type of reality, whatever that may be. And so many, again, online communities and things to learn. YouTube has been very helpful with this pandemic, just watching all these videos, learning new things. I, I took up new hobbies and even sources of income during the pandemic. It's like, look, I'm, I'm shut in and what I usually do isn't possible now. So let's try something different. Oh, well. I heard about this before, but I've said, oh, well, oh, I don't know if I have the time. Okay, look, now there's tons of time <laughs> and just uh, trying to grow and develop the things I'm already doing. So I, I, I hope that many listeners out there have grown in their skill set during the pandemic or taking on taken on some new things. Yeah, I hope so, too, because it's kind of like cleaning your house or uh, getting a massage you you don't focus on one area, you gradually go through the whole area, whether it's cleaning the home or getting a massage. And then over time, you know, you've got a completed project. So there's no one silver bullet. You just don't massage your back per se. You may want to massage your hips and other areas. And in the end, pushing on different areas creates a better finished product. Uh, there are really no silver bullets out there. It's just taking effort and action on multiple fronts. Yes, and recognizing what's inside and outside of our control, which is another theme in your book and a major theme within Stoicism, is people can become so upset over things that they have no influence over. Certainly, we're not going to wake up and say things like, oh, it's so terrible that it rained outside today. Life is horrible. Like, well, you, you have to adapt to that and accept that. that. That's just a part of life. But so many other things, too, we can't control others' behaviors. We can try to influence them. We we're getting laid off from a certain position. Well, okay, was that our fault? Or was that just, as you said before, a downsizing or a company change? Distinguishing what's inside of our control and outside of our control is really, really important. So one of the chapters in the book is don't look in the rear view mirror. And uh, my wife and I 
early in our marriage tried to have children and we couldn't get that done. And there's a real funny story in the book about that that I won't relate here. But in return, what we did was we actually tried to get involved in helping children who were finding a home, foster care, adoption services. So it was a way for us to kind of channel our intention to others less fortunate. And again, not looking in the rearview mirror or beating ourselves up so much over not being able to conceive. Right. So you could find other solutions to what we perceive as problems or ways to adapt. Great. And now you're in financial advising. So how did that transition come about? So after my uh, time as a gentleman host for one year, I realized that was kind of like a sabbatical. And I was at a friend's wedding and it was in Oklahoma, and the newspaper had an ad to become your own boss uh, by becoming an Edward Jones financial advisor. So I interviewed for the company, got accepted, moved in a U-Haul from Chicago at the time back to Kansas City, and uh, began knocking on thousands of doors to ask people to give me their money to invest for them. Um, so I really believed in... Um, dollar cost averaging. So again, gradually putting a little bit of money away. And uh, I believed in that because I bought my first car that way. When I was a little paper boy back 11 years old, I started putting a little bit of money away. So I believed in that power to help others and to have them believe in themselves to be the same type of person. So after three years of knocking on these doors, I finally built a business and uh, I used all my previous skills of the military, my restaurant field, being a gentleman host, having to take the SAT six times, uh, learning how to get into, learning how to uh, see better, um, and, and finally became an accomplished financial advisor, again, serving and helping others uh, by helping them gradually get to where they have independence and security. Yes, and a major theme within Stoicism is the frugal life and being careful with our money and not elevating it to such an importance that we compromise our character to be happy with less, to be satisfied and to be okay with that. Instead of wanting these luxurious mansions and super expensive clothes, we can be okay with a modest dwelling. And this isn't a life of squalor, you know, we're not living in dumpsters and um, trying to uh, <laughs> dumpster dive and eat food like that, right? We, we can have a, a moderate position here and still live a good life. The, the money doesn't buy you happiness, but it does buy you the ability to make choices on your terms. So the only reason I was able to take that year off is because I lived beneath my means and I put a little bit of money away every month for many years so that when I did get laid off, I could afford to take that wonderful experience and everyone else can do the same. It's a fascinating thing in that even people who are making six figures or more are still talking about being paycheck to paycheck and maybe they're squandering a lot of their money on luxuries and dining out and they're paying full price for travel when they don't really need to and they can save in other ways, whereas the person who's maybe making 40000 50000 a year can have more peace of mind living that frugal type of life. One of the themes in the book is, hey, we can't have it all. And really, to be quite frank, no one does. And one of the things that we kind of have to realize in this 
social media time is that what what you may be seeing may not be the true reality of how people really are living. So it's very important to understand that it's okay if you don't have it all. Uh, your health, your relationships, your spirituality come first, and then everything else follows. And if you know you don't have a big home, but you have a nice home and a nice car, that's perfectly fine. And and the fact you have your health is much better than having millions and millions of dollars in poor health and poor relationships. Right. And the financial freedom can be a gradual process too. Maybe people won't be able to retire at 30, 40, 50, or whatever it might be, but they can take some small steps to cut some expenses and reevaluate their priorities, which Stoicism calls us to do, to be mindful of the things we value. And as you said, that re the relationships, the people around us, shall we give up that in pursuit of other things that just aren't so good? Should we give up those relationships in pursuit of things that really aren't that important at the end of the day? Yeah, I think the journey, whether you're running a marathon or, or learning how to be a gentleman host or learning how to be a tremendous podcast host, it's, it's the journey along the way and the people you meet and the experiences you have that make it so enriching and valuable. And I must ask, because my other podcast focuses on travel and credit cards, do you do anything with travel credit cards? Uh, you know, it's so interesting. I, I do nothing with travel and credit cards, but I do make sure my Southwest visa gives me plenty of points in order to uh, travel to my ports of call when I need to for free. Uh, there you go. Some, <laughs> some points. Yeah, I, I'm at a point now with 23 active credit cards, just getting many accounts, many sign-up bonuses and benefits, and that's definitely cut the costs for me. I've talked about that in some previous episodes, and that's my other podcast, the Hurdy Gurdy Travel Podcast, is that's been uh, quite the hobby over the past few years, uh, traveling at next to no cost. So that's that's been really interesting, too. I, I think that if you look into this, not only with travel, not only with stoicism, that there are just so many ways to try to optimize or to cut costs or to just be more efficient in, in what we do, just having some humility and saying, okay, look, I'm going to try to, as you're saying, reinvent. I'm going to try to do things differently and see if this works for me rather than just doing things the same old, same old. I love I love that you're into travel because I think that's such an education to travel and to talk with different people from the different countries. So that's wonderful. Um, and I believe wholeheartedly that's worth more than many, many things in this world. We so my wife and I decide to live in a modest home, but we decide to eat very healthy. So it's important that we're willing to spend on better quality food at the expense of living in a bigger home, let's say. And I think as you go through um, and your listeners go through making these certain decisions, I think they're all good. I think it's a part of that 80% solution we previously talked about. Yes, because what good is all the money if your health is in shambles? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Or, you know, you want to make sure that instead of working to make more money, you do set aside maybe that one hour a day to go for a nice walk or bike ride or do a yoga class, whatever may make you feel wonderful. I, I think it's really tragic for people who are burnt out in traditional jobs. They work the Monday through Friday. Monday comes around and, oh, I can't wait for the weekend already. And they're just dreading day to day going into work. And then they're super tired on the weekend and life just becomes a job that they don't like. And that that's really sad to hear from that as I've had some former coworkers, I think, who were in that situation. And I said, you know what, this isn't for me. I got to do something else. I got to try something else. 
I think we just have to get to where we're not too lackadaisical about working, but then at the same time, we're not too crazy about working. I think that 80% solution, again, is really good because we both have friends that are burnt out from working too much. And then some of us may have some friends that maybe they don't put their nose to the grindstone enough. Yes. And maybe there's that lack of meaning. They're just not finding meaning in what they're doing. And it seems to just be routine and pointless. You're rolling that rock up the hill just for it to fall down once again, as the Sisyphus story says. So we really want to try to avoid that. And I think with stoicism, we can be more mindful. We can evaluate our strengths, what we want to do, and try something different. Try, 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 rather than just doing the same thing over and over again and being unsatisfied. Yeah, I think everyone, if you're uncomfortable trying something, you're growing. And just remember that, even if you don't achieve the result you want. And maybe some gratitude and being mindful of that, just recognizing and like, oh, well, maybe this isn't the thing for me. So many people just accept it and think that change is impossible. And this is just my destiny or this is just something I have to do. And they just give up. Uh, Justin, I want to make sure that come December that you root for Army in the Army-Navy game in Philadelphia. Ah, (laughs) hopefully, hopefully we'll have it because many sports have been downsized and some games canceled. So we'll we'll find out what happens. Well, Philadelphia is a great city and uh, it's so much fun watching the Rocky movies over and over again. Every once a year, I try to watch them also. Nice, nice. Yes, I look forward to going back to the airport as I'm about 30 minutes away from that there as uh, some of my life changes and moving to just try to optimize and have some more happiness too as uh, travel got me to Stoicon. That was in 2019, late 2019, where I went to Athens, Greece. And that, that was quite the experience to have there. Unfortunately, no physical Stoicon this year, but maybe we'll see it again in 2021. I visited Greece and all the different islands and uh, to see the remnants of the culture, uh, you really got a feeling of uh, just a tremendous spirituality. It was it was quite an experience. All right, great. We're coming up on time. So again, your book is An Extraordinarily Ordinarily Life, Lessons Learned. We can find that on Amazon and many other places. How else can people find your book? Uh, there's a link right at my LinkedIn page that you can find it. And uh, Amazon directly under my name, Tim Carlin. And I, I really appreciate this time with you on the podcast. It's been thoroughly enjoyable. Absolutely. Went by pretty fast here. <laughs> Usually does with guests. That's good. And I'll leave some links in the description where people can find the book and find more about you. Are you on social media? Can people find you on Facebook, Twitter, other places? Yes, I'm on Facebook and LinkedIn. Great. And Facebook, they'll just search Tim Carlin. Is it an author page, a personal page? It'll be a personal page. And then there's a business page, Tim Carlin at V Wealth. Great. That's V Wealth. V as in Victor. Yes. Yes. Great. And how can people reach you? Maybe if they have any questions. Yeah. uh, My Clearly, they're able to uh, send me a personal email, which is fine, at timcarlin at icloud.com. Great. And anything else for listeners or anything else to wrap up with? No, it's just been uh, really enjoyable, and I've enjoyed our conversation. I, I hope to continue in the future listening to your podcast and getting into more and more stoicism and philosophy. All right. Great. Thanks for joining me today. Thank you so much, Justin. Thanks for listening and stay tuned for more content. 
Visit my website at stoicsolutionspodcast.com for past episodes and social media links. Support my efforts through Patreon or Subscribestar, linked on my website, to receive special perks, including having upcoming podcast guests answer your questions, custom-made podcast episodes, and private one-on-one calls to discuss whatever you'd like. Visit my other podcast at hurdygurdytravel.com to learn how to make money, save money, and travel the world at next to no cost with credit card rewards, deals, and loyalty programs. Thanks to generous patrons and fans of this podcast who help support my work. Have a great day. Thank you.